Hi, welcome to another edition of the Infernal Brains podcast. I'm Tars Tarkas from TarsTarkas.net. And I'm Todd Statman from Die Danger Die Die Kill, a.k.a. 40K. And as we are the Infernal Brains, we have a, another brain-centered podcast <laughs> for you today with everybody's favorite classic Mexican horror film, El Baron del Terror, or as it's more commonly known in the U.S., The Brainiac. Yeah, I think this is, a, we can say this is a pretty much a canonical psychotronic film, wouldn't you say that, uh, yeah. Tars? It's one it's, of the, the required viewings for anyone who's into monster costumes that are ridiculous or uh-huh. classic Mexican horror films, so it yeah. straddles both sides of the fence. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I first became aware of this film when I was a kid and I heard this from other people as well. There was a picture of the, of the brainiac of the monster in an issue of famous monsters of Filmland. I remember they used to occasionally had run pictures from Mexican horror movies. And I remember looking at that and thinking, you know, whatever the 10 year old version of what the fuck is probably what the fuck. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I kind of became obsessed with it from then. Didn't see it for quite a long time, but mm. when I did, it didn't, it was not disappointing. Yeah. I've, I've read that story a lot, even though I'm probably too young to, for that issue to have come out. Right. The film is famous enough that I heard about it before I saw it. Yeah. And it was, the, I guess the, the American dub version was in enough video shops that I saw it a long, long time ago. Right. And then didn't see it again until recently where I saw both Riff Tracks version of it and then the, the Mexican or the Spanish language version with the restored DVD, which I think came out in 2006 or 2007. Right. Oh, was that with the Casa Negra uh, version? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we should mention too that th- this is not this was not planned, but th- just the way that things sort of sh- shook out for this episode is that Nick comes to this episode having watched only uh, El Baron del Terror, the original Spanish language version of the film, but not Brainiac, and then mm-hmm. myself because all I had access to was the Brainiac. I've watched the Brainiac, so. Uh, <laughs> So we're probably going to be filling each other in and discovering in the course of our journey today what the difference differences between the two is. I mean, the, the Brainiac, El Baron de Terror, sorry, is one of a handful of films that Kay Gordon Murray purchased. He brought a number of Mexican films. Some, some of those were the those atrocious kitty films like mm-hmm. the little red riding hood movies and santa claus and yeah. those were part of his famous matinee kitty matinee package because he was known as the king of the kitty matinees and then others some of the horror films a couple santo movies he bought and repackaged for american television and dubbed them i think isn't that right uh tars or did were those uh, theatrical releases too uh, i think he had both he had like kits for the theaters and they had to follow the specific marketing mm. stuff for the theaters and then he also had the television kits for the TVs too and okay in general he made they were really successful with the way he was marketing them mm-hmm. there's even 
Okay, I've heard this. I don't know if it's true. I heard there was a cult in New York that worshipped K, K. Gordon Murray <laughs> uh -huh. as like a, a demon or something. And it, oh. it freaked out enough for the local shop shop owners there that they wouldn't sell the K. Gordon Murray merchandise or get rid of it. I don't I don't know if this is true. It's yeah, just, is this, yeah. this for real? Yeah, it sounds like one of those crazy things, but then, you know, we've had enough weird stuff happen in reality that... Right, that's true. That's yeah. true. People kind of bag on K. Gordon Murray and his treatment of these movies, but, I mean, one thing you can you can say about him is it's probably due to his efforts more than anyone else's that anyone in the United States knows about Santo because two of the films he brought over and dubbed were two of the best early Santo films. He brought over uh, Santo versus the vampire women and Santo and the wax museum. Yeah. Though he did rechristen Santo Samson for some reason, cause mm -hmm. that's not confusing at all. But, uh, yeah, and I think he, he left him pretty untouched, but I, mean, I mean, he's he's pretty notorious for for the quality of his dubbing. The dubbing tends to be pretty flat. Uh, yeah, they were all done by the same husband and wife, and their couple, their five or six other people team that did all of uh -huh. them. So it's all the same voices in almost all the K. Gordon Murray films. Right. So it gets sort it's sort of you know like familiar, but it's also sort of. It's like when you watch the all those dub kung fu movies and they all have the same mm -hmm. five or six people and you just recognize right. the same voices. Right, the guy who does the English accent. And yeah. The, right, right. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is like that. You know, and so El, El Baron del Terror, a.k.a. the Brainiac, is, is, is part of that package. So, you know, if you're of a certain age, you may have seen it on Saturday afternoon TV back in the day in the 60s or 70s. I guess after K. Gordon Murray died, a lot of his films were in a bunch of limbo because there's a bunch of copyright issues, and so that's mm. that may be why the El, El, is El Negro DVD is El Baron de Terror print instead of the Brainiac print. Mm. But I think they have the, the audio, which they might have gotten from the, the actual audio company and not the... K. Gordon Murray estate, but I don't. I really don't know. Yeah. Well, I know. Uh, I don't know if Brainiac is officially in the public domain, but I know that the copy I own is like a public domain. You know, right. like a dollar TV. I think I got it at Walgreens or something like that. And and I know that the two Samson movies he did were also available on public domain discs for a long time. But maybe that they kind of fell through the cracks because I haven't seen them available for a while. Yeah, it might be like the the Gamera films that were public domain, even though they're not really. Right. Yeah. Who knows? It's all we're not lawyers. No. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Let's make that clear. Yeah. We're disbarred. <laughs> but we may go in the bootleg DVD market, so it's important to know these distinctions. You know. It's yeah. Like we might try and put out a whole slew of Gamera videos on the uh, DVDs on the market, you know, for a week and see what we can do with it. So anyway, what's what to say about Brainiac, El Baron del Terror? Uh, one of the things I did notice, you had mentioned that you thought maybe the soundtrack was different on the K. Gordon Murray version, but it does, in the opening credits to Brainiac, it does credit Gustavo Carrion, who did the the score to the original version now whether it's an edited version of the score and whether it's used in the same way as is uh would have to be judged by someone who had seen both movies which is neither of us so yeah best i can do and even then i probably wouldn't be listening as 
distinctly to the soundtrack or not unless it was something like they do occasionally where they'll have dramatic music at an actual time where you notice it but other times it'll just fade to the background while i'm busy watching blinking lights in the main characters faces right exactly yeah i mean i did notice there was one little comedy cue when the goofy sort of comic relief detective said something dumb and it went like that (laughs) (laughs) that was and that was the only time it really grabbed me yeah there's also at least one part where the in the English soundtrack where it's not dubbed into English and it's still in Spanish, uh, which yeah. I th- I think I remember reading is actually in the the other the the Brainiac version, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I wonder because it looks there. It's pretty. I mean, for a movie, this is a movie from '62. It's not super gory, but it's still pretty intense. It's it's kind of gross more than it's. Gory. Yeah. You know, and and there's a lot of, and I can't imagine them having cut that much from the American version, given what you see in it, what you do see. So mm-hmm. maybe we should talk about some of the personnel involved in this movie. The movie stars and is produced by Abel Salazar, mm-hmm. who was a, an actor. He started acting in the early 40s, but he also started producing pretty soon after that. And in about 57, he formed a production company called ABSA, which I guess is a contraction of Abel Salazar. And he started producing genre films, and he did a lot of horror films. He did a film called El Vampiro, which is said to have kicked off the Mexican horror boom. Mm-hmm. And also was the film that typecast German Robles uh, forever in the role of a vampire. And he's actually in, in Brainiac as well, though, in a supporting role. Yeah. And I, I don't know. It seems like I, he probably had some love for horror films, Salazar. But it sounds like it was, uh, a lot of his, his uh, motivation was financial because he was inspired by the universal horror films. Mm-hmm. And those had made a lot of money for Universal. So he thought that would be a good way to go. And apparently he was right because the films did pretty well yeah and actually his his brother is alfredo salazar who wrote like a huge ton of the notable mexican genre films including uh the aztec mummy trilogies the doctor doom the batwoman film a bunch of the santo films curse of the doll people uh-huh. it's just like too many to list and like, right yeah and so yeah. even like with salazar following the universal mold and his brother doing the more I guess the more lower rent stuff. It, right. Like between them, they like help have their fingerprints all over Mexican cinema for yeah. 40 years. Yeah. This film actually has a lot of those too many credits to mention people involved. Yeah. The story is by Federico Curiel, who is, was also a director and he, he directed a lot of Sano movies. Yeah. Uh, he also, he was a musician too. And he has, he scored a lot oh, of films wow. and he, I think, man. Yeah, and he plays the uh, the sidekick detective in here who reminded me of like Phil Silvers or something. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> so the he wasn't like a he was sort of goofy, but he did look like Sil- Phil Silvers. He wasn't as a as a sort of a comic relief sidekick. He wasn't as bad. He was he was low key enough not to be irritating. It wasn't he wasn't like Tin Tan or one of those guys. Yeah. He was bearable, but it was I didn't know that until you just told me that 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 was him. So and yeah. he's and he's one of there's uh, another director cameo in the movie too, playing one of the Brainiacs victims is Renee Cardona, which I guess I should say Renee Cardona Senior. Since yeah, he has his whole legacy. <laughs> 
Right, exactly. And it gets confusing because both Rene Cardona Jr. and Rene Cardona Sr. were making, directing films at the same time. And I think there were films that they even worked on together. But mm-hmm. but uh, Sr. directed Night of the Bloody Apes and uh, Santa Claus <laughs> and a lot of Santo movies, yeah. uh, just like uh, Curiel did. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he also, I should point out, he does, there's a scene, there's a scene uh, where Rene Cardona is supposed to be frozen, like paralyzed by the villain, and he looks like he's trying very hard not to laugh, especially once the monster shows up. Yeah, a lot of the the Baron, when he hypnotizes people, and so they have to freeze, and they can only act with their eyes, so we got a lot of, (laughs) the characters have big, wide eyes, and are looking around with their eyes. Well, they have to freeze the rest of their face, and it just sort of looks pretty ridiculous. But uh, I think even German Robles does even a more ridiculous job. He looks like his eyes are about to pop out of, out of his head, and well, also these guys are being forced, basically, to paralyze and forced to watch as the as the brainiac has his its way with their wives and daughters mm-hmm. which is sort of like the way the brainiac rolls which we'll we'll get into yeah. uh, uh, eventually definitely <laughs> uh, <laughs> and also as a director we've got chano urueta i uh, really like his movies he did most of the early blue demon movies that blue demon mm-hmm. did for vergara i didn't know a lot about him couldn't find a lot of information on him but what i could find uh, shows that he had a pretty illustrious career. He mm-hmm. uh, was involved in revolutionary politics when he was a teenager, and he joined uh, with Zapata and Pancho Villa as a filmmaker. Uh, he worked in Hollywood during the silent era. He was an assistant director to Eisenstein, mm-hmm. and then he, in the 50s, 40s, 50s, he started just making a lot of genre pictures in the Mexican film industry and cranked out quite a lot. He made a film called The Magnificent Beast or La Bestia Magnifica which had Wolf Ruvinskis who played Neutron which was considered one of the earliest wrestling films so I guess sort of a progenitor of the Lucha Libre genre. But the one thing that struck me, I mean obviously the guy had a, a pretty amazing career and was a very seasoned filmmaker. And the thing that I always like about his Lucha films and his horror films is that they're weird. I mean, the Brainiac is weird. Uh, definitely. Yeah. It's sort of reading all this. It just, it occurred to me that maybe he was just, you know, it's not so much that he was weird. Maybe he was just bored, you know, <laughs> maybe he was just trying to spice these movies up kind of like, like Seijun Suzuki did at Nakatsu, where he was bored with these gangster scripts, so he would just do all these weird stylistic things to make it more interesting for yeah, him. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> or maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, we can't ask him. So. Yeah, I'm not even sure I can. I'm pronouncing his name correctly, so I'd be kind of ashamed anyway. So. Yeah. As everyone expects, El Baron del Toro opens with the Spanish Inquisition, and the evil Baron is being brought before a bunch of masked people, and they read off his crimes. I was just going to say that the beginning of the movie really reminds me of Mario Bava's Black Sunday, the way that begins with, you know, the same thing. It starts in the 17th century, and... and and uh, sentences being pronounced on the witch in this case, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, so it's very, very similar. Yeah, Bloody Pit of Horror also has the same opening with the Inquisition and the 
the guy getting his crimes named. Right. To, yeah. Yeah, and then and then getting put in his own torture device, uh, like yeah. like Barbara. Yeah, he gets put in a Iron Maiden. Barbara Steele gets a spike mask hammered onto her face, and yeah. the, and the Baron gets burnt. But uh, one thing I wanted to check with you is I wanted to uh, I wrote down all the charges. <laughs> <laughs> they were ready. Baron and maybe I could I could read those and we you can tell me if they if they fit with uh, the uh, subtitled version because it's quite a list I mean it's they really you know they weren't worried about putting too fine a point on it mm-hmm. the charges against him and and you also have to understand the version I watched that these are it's the K Gordon Murray version so it's the dub version so it's read as if by a hypnotized person reading the table of elements you know it's just like very flat so yeah. uh, but the charges are for heresy and the instigation of heresy for practicing dogmatism for having used witchcraft superstitions and conjurations for depraved and dishonest ends for having employed the art of necromancy, invoking the dead, trying to foretell the future through the use of corpses, which mm-hmm. is interesting. And then la- buried way at the end is for having seduced married women and maidens. Yeah, and that's where he cracks up when that one's read. Because yeah. like, he's yeah. grinning like on and off throughout, but that's the one where like he like bursts out laughing. <laughs> Like, he's like, oh, you people. But yeah, and I do think that that's probably, they buried that at the end, but I do think that that's what the people are, you know, I think that's what he's really being punished for. Because also you hear some some chatter from the rabble and the women mm-hmm. in the audience aren't sounding, they're sounding like they're going to kind of miss having the Baron around. Because I think the Baron has some kind of sex mojo going on. The scene where he's being burned and then there's just townspeople there commenting on it all goofily that like it doesn't, right. doesn't fit at all with what's supposedly a serious moment where the guy's getting burned to death and like... <laughs> kind of gossiping and yeah uh yeah it is pretty it's pretty silly takes the the emphasis out of like all the the all the like the religious uh, catholicism dogma stuff well what else takes the edge off that is that the fact that they uh dress the baron up as the pope yeah As they say, it's like some kind of, you know, it's part of the ritual is that it's like the garment of shame to sort of subject him to ridicule. But then when they come to the scene where he's being burnt, he's wearing like the miter and like the robes. He's dressed like, you know, a bishop or, or the pope, mm-hmm. um, you know, so what that is meant to imply, you know, well, draw your own conclusions. But I mm-hmm. thought that was uh, that was sort of an interesting little touch. Yeah, and then he's just like casually like, whatever. Uh, you see that comet? I'll be back when it's back. And then right, <laughs> like yeah, he's like bring it on. That <laughs> his whole uh, attitude during the thing. And then yeah, and then he he calls out the executioners, even though they're all hooded. He knows yeah. who they are, and he names them one by one. And then he says he'll return in three hundred years when the when the comet passing overhead returns and then he'll have his revenge on all of their descendants that he'll mm-hmm. basically wipe out their entire lineage and then i guess he disappears doesn't he yeah i think they they blur it somewhat with the flames so i'm not sure if right the how how if he just vanishes or if they just 
makes the flames right. go big. The cover is vanishing, but unclear. Yeah, and then the then the times jump forward three hundred years to nineteen sixty one. Yep. Sorry. There should have been some go-go music at that point. I guess it was a little too early. Yeah, and so it's just, you know, like, non-exciting, not really rock and roll playing when they jump to modern days at a dance place, so... That's right. Now, and, and what's going on with this guy? Because the first guy we see in 1961 is this guy who's played by Ruben Rojo, whose who's name in the, in the Spanish version is Reynaldo and Ronnie mm-hmm. in the, in the uh, English version. Mm-hmm. But he shows up in the sequence in the, in the 1600s as a character named Marcos Miranda, who mm-hmm. is a, he acts as a character witness for the Baron. He like actually comes to testify to his defense. Yeah. And they just throw him there. They, they, you know, the hooded guy is just, I think they throw him in jail for heresy or something. Yeah. They, they give him a bunch of lashes. That's what they, they say. Oh, okay. For, for right. lying, even though like, right. You know, he may they think... decided he was lying. Yeah. Yeah. He's just like the Baron's a good guy, and then like you're a liar, whip. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the deal with that guy? Why was that guy? You know, because it's one of those movies where 300 later years later, there's all the descendants, mm-hmm. and of course they're played by the same actors because everyone knows that you know all through the you know. All through every generation, people of the same, you know, of the same lineage look exactly the same. So, and so we have this guy who isn't even, it's never even mentioned that he's, in the version I watch, it's never even mentioned that he's a descendant. It's just like he's an identical guy. Is there anything explaining the purpose of that, him being in the prologue and the version watched no there's only a throwaway sentence at the end where he's defending his girlfriend who's also a descendant and the the baron tells him uh get out of the way because your your ancestor defended me don't make me uh re don't make me uh forget it and so wow that's quite a payoff yeah so it's one of the things that doesn't seem to make any sense at all but i guess to show that the Baron is doing this for a purpose and not just to kill random people, which doesn't jive with him killing all the random women, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's just like, he's like, right out of the gate, he starts killing people, but yeah, that's like supposed to show that he's a, that he's principled, I guess. But then, right, Ronnie's girlfriend is a descendant of one of the executioners, so she's on his hit list of people to to do the brainiac thing on you know we're gonna have to deal with the brainiac at some point you know we're gonna have to we're gonna have to to lay it out as far as the brainiac is concerned because when we first thing we see in 1961 is that well we were introduced to ronnie and vicky and they're both conveniently astronomers and they're way eagerly awaiting the the arrival of this comet Mm -hmm. and which which ends up looking like a, I don't know, like a, a mountain from an HO train set being dropped into the middle of a, a, a set or something like that. It's yeah. kind of, it's kind of weird. It's like an elevator or something that just right. <laughs> yeah, it, la- it makes a very gent- gentle landing on Earth. And at which point the Baron steps out, but he's in his brainiac guise. And this mm-hmm. is the first time we ever 
see him. And the thing I'll just say about the costume without describing it is that, you know, it, it, this is a low budget movie. Definitely. It's obviously all filmed indoors. All of the exterior scenes are shot in front of these photographic backdrops that it looks like the actors are about to walk into them. So, you know, a lot of cheesy movies, especially really notorious ones and the monsters are kind of weird. A lot of times you can blame it on, just the monsters being cheap and them just kind of throwing it together like robot monster. They just put a diving helmet on top of a gorilla suit, but Mm -hmm. the, but the brainiac there, it seems like he's pretty, it's, it's pretty involved, right? It seems like a lot of thought, weird thought went into it. Yeah. I think it's, it's sort of based on some demon, like Mm -hmm. older demon images, but it's not that exact. And then like the, they, I guess they made the mask a little too complex for the technology, right? And so it just it comes off not looking as good. It has a right. He has an oversized head. It's almost like a Mardi Gras mask or something. Yeah. But there's a, and it's you know it's pretty fixed. Like it doesn't have a lot of mobility. The mouth is just kind of frozen open. It has these big fangs, and he has like a big old nose like a big old pointy nose and pointy ears yeah Uh, but then there's obviously there's like a bladder inside the mask yeah i I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be breathing like that or if it was just the actor when he breathes in and out it inflated and deflated the mask (laughs) because it inflates and deflates the top though it's not around his mouth it's like the top of the head is kind of pulsating but in this weird you know, it, it, it's not uh, it's not real impressive. It's kind of funny because the head kind of caves in on the inhale. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a weird a weird effect. Yeah, maybe and, it's deflating because it needs to be filled up with brains. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, I thought it had something to do with the whole brain focus, and and then it has this long serpentine forked tongue mm-hmm. that protrudes out of the mouth which is super grotesque i mean there's like a a not a not subtle at all sexual undercurrent that runs pretty much through this entire film i think it's the the baron's invasive tongue and then he has sort of like uh, lobster hands yeah (laughs) they're like tentacle lobster hands or something Yeah. yeah And he just shows up like this is another thing that's interesting is he just you you don't see any reference to the Baron having this brainiac <laughs> being the brainiac in the in the early part. It's just he shows he when he comes out of the comet, he's in this guise and it's not like he's and he transforms back and forth. It's sort of like a Jekyll and Hyde thing. And mm-hmm. and Tars, the thing I wanted to ask you is like, what what do you think the deal with that is? Do you think that the Baron was always the Brainiac and we just didn't learn about it in the prologue. I think so because later in the film he says, when he's reading about his own execution, he said that he had no ancestors. He always was, he just was the, the Baron. Oh, okay. And that's, so that makes me think that he was just a demon and then he just took human form at that point in, okay. in Mexican history on, to, to cause a lot of trouble. Okay. All right. I wasn't. I mean, I thought that might be the case, but it wasn't explicit. I guess. Yeah. It's, they don't. They don't explain a lot. They just run forward. I guess they, that that's good because it makes us work along with. Yeah. 
and it uh, it engages us further in the story. Yeah. Well, you know the the backstory of the Brainiac is so well known; they don't need to explain. Right. It. Exactly. It's yeah. just because we're yeah, it's because we're gringos and we just don't get it. Yeah. Well, what's sort of interesting is when he comes out all disheveled because his his clothes are all tore up too. Which right. I guess if you're living in a comet for 300 years you got to have some hobby which is ripping your clothes right the first person he kills is played by victor velasquez who's the father of lorena velasquez who's, oh wow okay in all those wrestling women movies right and like he kills him and then luckily his clothes fit so he trans transports his clothes so now he's all dressed in a nice suit Right, yeah, and, it, and the clothes just disappear from the victim. Yeah. Leaving him with his wife beater and, and, and boxers on. Yeah. And, they, and they appear on Abel Salazar. Mm-hmm. and uh, Which I guess means that Abel Salazar is going commando since he didn't take the guy's, you know, drawers with him. But, yeah, well, he's the hedonist, so. <laughs> right, exactly, because, yes, exactly. He needs, to, <laughs> he needs to be able to just whip off. He probably has, like, one of those zipper suits where he can just whip the whole thing off in one in one arm movement. Yeah. And then he becomes, he dons the suit and he becomes the suave and sophisticated Baron. Once again, it was interesting. You're talking about that actor, uh, being the father of Lorena Velasquez, because that the next person that he kills is in a bar and it's like a bar, you know, a bar girl. Mm -hmm. And she's played by Ariadne Welter, who actually replaced Lorena Velasquez as in the fourth uh, Los Luchadores movie, The Panther Women, mm-hmm. and and was reportedly not very pleased with being in those movies because she said some not very nice things about them. I think she said something like, if, if it would be possible for to launch every copy into the sun, she would be none too happy or something along those lines. But yeah, yeah. So basically, it adds another level of enjoyment to the Brainiac that you could play Six Degrees of Lorena Velasquez with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of weird how the, the Baron is supposed to be all suave and most of his suaveness is just staring at the, the various people or women and while right. they just go on and talk. And so it, his charisma seems to be more implied than actually there. Well, no, his charisma is represented by a flashlight flash yeah. <laughs> in his face. When he stares at them. You see or a pin spot that goes on and off. Mm-hmm. But it does. It works on the women. They're, they seem to to be to find him alluring at first, mm-hmm. until he changes. You know, like most men, yeah. he, once they're interested, he cha- he turns into a beast, and mm-hmm. then he sucks their brains out. Yeah, with his tongue. Yeah. Another thing he does is he seems to show up in places right when they're closing, because he yeah. shows up at the bar when it's closing, right. and then he goes to a research place, and that's when they're closing too. Right. So he, you know, the Baron doesn't live by your open hour rules. Right, exactly. He's that guy who shows up at the mall just as the guy's about to lock the door. Wait, I know exactly what I want. Come on, let me in. You know, I'm the Baron. Flash, (laughs) flash, flash. (laughs) He doesn't seem to. Well, what he, yeah, his his sort of hypno charisma. It's with women. It seems to draw them in. Mm-hmm. But with men, I mean, and he does suck the brains of men too, but he's definitely less interested in the men. So what he'll, what he does on a couple occasions is he, he hypnotizes the man and the man becomes frozen like we were talking about uh, earlier. And then he'll have his way with 
there in the first case i think it's german robles and it's his wife and he kills his wife sucks his wife's brains out in front of him while he's standing there with his eyes goggling out of his head and then he makes really short work of german's character because he's not into that and then he does the same thing with with the daughter of the character played by renee cordona cordona he's sort of yeah i think he got him flipped Oh, okay. So, yeah, Herman Robles is the translator of the daughter, and Rene Cardona is the steel guy. Oh, okay. All who, right. Who jumps into the fire himself after being hypnotized in what I guess is oh, supposed to right. be the ironic switch of how they condemned the Baron to be burned to death. Right. Although, when he killed Herman Robles' character, he strangled him and then set him on fire after they were already dead. So it's. That's right. It's not really ironic because it's doesn't fit right and then the third lady i don't think they burn her at all so <laughs> yeah I don't, Give, I don't know. he gives up on the ironic fire <laughs> he was all out of irony well they only yeah. killed him so many ways i mean i guess they did torture him and then the torture did nothing which is why they burned him is what oh, they yeah. what they said at the beginning because he just enjoyed the torture because mm-hmm. he's such a badass but um okay so it was the daughter of the herman robles character who was really hot by the way i must say and she was like very yeah she she was really into the baron until he turned into the monster i don't have her name written down but she was in a bunch of stuff either a bunch of stuff too so pretty much everybody in this film was in a bunch of stuff and a lot of them also had other things but yeah yeah i think that salazar had a stock company of actors that he worked with um, with Absa, and I, I think Robles was one. I think Ariadne Welter was one. Um, and I know he worked with Rene Cardona a lot, too. I don't know if Rene Cardona actually appeared in, in a lot of his films, but he did have certain people that he worked with again and again. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's see. The main the characters we haven't spoken that much about is the, there's a bald detective who goes along with the uh, Federico Curiel character who's uh, sort of following the murders, and he's played by uh, David Silva, mm-hmm. who is another familiar name from all the Mexican genre films. He was uh, in the he played like thug characters or uh, mm-hmm. the Hurricane Ramirez films, and he was in the Batwoman film and a bunch of other stuff I didn't write down because of yeah. the space. But right, yeah. If we were if we really got into listing, I mean, it's that mm-hmm. kind of a movie where yeah. it's just sort of a who who of Mexican genre movies of the 60s and and everybody who worked in that industry I think I, I think you couldn't not be prolific if you made one movie you made like a hundred you yeah. know so all these people were in a whole bunch of them yeah and there's also a lot of characters in this movie that it was actually for a film that has a pretty simple concept you know that guy comes back from the past to get revenge against his killers. You know, we've got the two, Ronaldo and, and Vicky, who are the two astronomers who are sort mm-hmm. of on the case trying to figure out what's going on. Then you have the two cops, and then you have their boss at the observatory, and then mm-hmm. there's all the various descendants of the executioners. I mean, there's a lot of people to keep track of in the movie. Yeah, some of them, like the boss at the ast- astronomy place, he doesn't 
really do anything except be the guy who knows about the comet and then gets all worried right. when it disappears. But besides right. that, he doesn't factor in at all. <laughs> yeah, he's just kind of an exposition ma- machine. He he shows up to spout pseudo science or pseudo astronomy to explain about the comet. You're right. I guess we couldn't accept that Ruben Rojo was old enough to be a distinguished astronomer. So the guy who's like five years older than him had to play the right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, just like yeah, just like Herman Robles is is playing. Obviously, he's supposed to be playing a man in his fifties, but yeah. you know, I don't think he's that much older than the woman playing his daughter. Yeah. But he does have the exact same mustache that his ancestor had. So. Oh yeah. So that's how you know. Yeah. They handed the mustache down from generation to generation. Yeah. The other thing that must be noted about the Brainiac and, and Brainiac slash Baron is that he, for sustenance, he keeps the a chalice filled yeah. with brains yeah. hidden in his desk. Mm-hmm. That on on occasion we are, we're shown him sort of furtively going to his desk and and taking a spoonful of brains and eating it like you know like it's Activa Activia or something like that. And I, I like that because it sort of mean it, it it's sort of presented like the Baron is like a shame eater, <laughs> you know, like the person who has like a drawer full of pudding in their desk that they kind mm-hmm. of secretly take a little. So this happens on more than one occasion. And, and it's a nice, it's a, like a gross, really, it, it's a nice gross effect, you know, it's yeah. obviously some sheep brains in this chalice, and then when he eats it, it's like, you know, it's really gooey, and mm-hmm. I like that about this movie, it really, it's it, it goes more for the gross out effects than the horror effects, definitely. Yeah, and it's sort of, it's funny, because that seems to be in the room that everyone's at, and like, yeah. he goes off to the room when nobody's looking, and he keeps looking back and grabbing stuff out, and it's like... Yeah, you know, you think you'd keep it, you know, in a separate room, but <laughs> right. I was waiting for that scene when it was like, Baron, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, nothing. <laughs> and uh, then he puts it in a chest. Yeah, or, but it's in, in, in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> And then at the end, uh, I think uh, uh, Ronaldo breaks in, and that's when he when he finds the the chalice of of half eaten brains is when he starts getting the idea that things are are not right with the Baron. Yeah. One thing though, because he's implied to he punctures the back of the people's heads and sucks out the brains, but the right. brains in the chalice are full brains. So right. he he's either getting brains from somewhere else that we're not seeing or. He swallows them out as goo and then regurgitates them in whole as brains into the chalice to save for later. Which, I, if that's the case, I'd like to think that it was only due to budgetary considerations <laughs> that they actually didn't show that happening, because yeah. that would have been pretty cool. But, yeah, I was wondering about that, too. Because, yeah, if you're, you're sucking brains out through these two little, little forked ends of the tongue, yeah, it's not going to look the way those did, definitely. So I don't know what that was about. Or maybe he brought those from home. Maybe <laughs> maybe he had those in a cooler in the comet yeah. with him and brought them, you know. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he was in there for 300 years, so yeah. he must have had quite a stockpile. He must have had, you know, a storm shelter's worth of, of brains mm-hmm. in that comet. Yeah, luckily, you know, he came back before TV rotted everyone's brains throughout the world. Right, exactly. So, yeah. so they were still good quality brains. Yeah. yeah. Now he'd starve to death. So. Right. But those brains were raised on the classics. Yeah. I, I don't really know what else to say about Brainiac. Uh, I mean, I definitely yeah. enjoyed watching One thing it. I thought was interesting was Brainiac also had a stock butler character. 
Oh, yeah. He was in the castle who they never explained where he came from. And then the Federico Curiel cop character was always suspicious of the the butler during the party scene and kept staring at the butler. That's right. And you see the butler, like, block the exit of the main lady when the Baron's attacking her. So the butler's evil. And then... Yeah, and then when the cops rush in with their flamethrowers, the the uh, Federico Curiel like smacks the butler with the flamethrower. Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah, yeah the butler. I forgot all about the butler, yeah. and I just so, watched this movie for like the fifth time yesterday. Yeah, the though they keep unsung butler. Yeah, though they keep the comic relief up with I guess Federico Curiel because when they're roasting the the Baron. Oh, spoilers by the way. But when they're roasting right, the yeah. Baron, he he never gets his flamethrower going. So it's, oh. it's only the other cop. Yeah. Yeah, they should have had him, like, you know, getting out a marshmallow and putting it on a stick or something stupid like that. Yeah. But about them also, I mean, since we're going to spoil the ending, yeah. about them using flamethrowers to kill the Baron at the end, mm-hmm. as if that worked the first time. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, that was, that, that was another, uh, obviously they weren't, this was not a documentary. Obviously this was not, they, they weren't really putting a lot of thought into, into logic when they made this, which is fine. Cause they made a, a movie with a monster with a pulsating head and a, mm. and a giant tongue that sucks women's brains out. Yeah. I showed it. I showed the ending to my wife and she was shocked that that's how it ended. And also that they burned the monster body and then it turned into the fully formed human form. That's right. Then it turned into the bones that were also burned again. So, right. Yeah. And then, and then it turned into a, a a treasure in gold and then then it turned into a, a frog smoking a cigarette. Yeah. Okay. None of that is true. Yeah. But it's sort of, it's weird how like, as with the Catholicism influence, instead of being burned by the Holy fire, he was killed by the, fire of modern technology so right exactly it, it, it sort of means something if the rest of the film meant anything but not really because it doesn't so right yes read into it what you will right yeah and i definitely think he was like supposed to be being punished for being such a lothario for being such a sex machine because mm-hmm. he was like so so brazen that he would even have the men's women right in front of them and they'd be powerless to do anything so of course he had to he had to be killed yep he was he was like the mystery the pickup artist <laughs> of, the, of the 17th century yeah so they dropped the ultimate negs on him with the flame <laughs> <laughs> yeah here's, yeah here's a neg for you yeah <laughs> This is a, it's a, this is a very entertaining movie, definitely. Yeah, it's Not like, good, but entertaining. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, you need to seek it out immediately. Yeah. It comes up all the time when people list out their, their favorite campy stuff and even like their favorite not campy stuff because it's just as solidly entertaining. Just, definitely. Yeah. Fast-paced, you know. doesn't waste your time. It's got enough ridiculous stuff with enough serious stuff that it... It could come off anyway. Right. And, you know, like most Mexican genre movies from this period, it is, I mean, it's cheap, but it's well made. I mean, it looks good. I mean, and Chana Ureta definitely knew how to set up a camera and set a scene and light a scene. There's some mm-hmm. nice sort of atmospheric, uh, nice black and white photography. So it's nice, nice looking, you know, always a slick product from the Mexican film industry of this era. So we recommend it. 
We do recommend it. Yeah, if you haven't seen it already, but probably most of you already have seen it. So that's it for El Baron del Terror or the Brainiac. So until next time and next world genre, this is the Infernal Brains checking out. See ya. See ya.